Section 4 of The Broken Shaft, Tales in Mid-Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Penn. The Broken Shaft, Tales in Mid-Ocean. Edited by Henry Norman. Marjorie by F. Anstey. It is not without an effort that I have resolved to break, in the course of this narrative, the reserve maintained for nearly twenty years. But the chief reason for silence is removed, now that those are gone who might have been pained or harmed by what I have to tell, and, though I shrink still from reviving certain memories that are fraught with pain, there are others associated therewith in which I shall surely find consolation and relief." I must have been about eleven at the time I am writing of, and the change which, for good or ill, comes over most boys' lives had not yet threatened mine. I had not left home for school, nor did it seem at all probable then that I should ever do so. When I read, I was a great reader, of Dothboys Hall and Salem House, a combination of which establishments formed my notion of school life, it was with no more personal interest than a cripple might feel in perusing the notice of an impending conscription, for from the battles of school life I was fortunately exempted. I was the only son of a widow, and we led a secluded life in a London suburb. My mother took charge of my education herself, and, as far as mere requirements went, I was certainly not behind other boys of my age. I owe too much to that loving and careful training, heaven knows, to think of casting any reflection upon it here. But my surroundings were such as almost necessarily to exclude all bracing and hardening influences. My mother had few friends. We were content with our own companionship, and of boys I knew and cared to know nothing. In fact, I regarded a strange boy with much the same unreasoning aversion as many excellent women feel for the ordinary cow. I was happy to think that I should never be called upon to associate with them. By and by, when I outgrew my mother's teaching, I was to have a tutor, perhaps even go to college in time, and when I became a man, I was to be a curate and live life with my mother in a clematis-covered cottage in some pleasant village. She would often dwell on this future with a tender prospective pride. She spoke of it on the very day that saw it shattered forever. For there came a morning when, on going to her with my lessons for the day, I was gladdened with an unexpected holiday. I little knew then, though I was to learn so soon, that my lessons had been all holidays, or that on that day they were to end forever. My mother had had one or two previous attacks of an illness which seemed to prostrate her for a short period, and as she soon regained her ordinary health, I did not think they could be of a serious nature. So I devoted my holiday cheerfully enough to the illumination of a text, on the gaudy coloring of which I found myself gazing two days later with a dull wonder, as at the work of a strange hand in a long-dead past. For the boy who had painted that was a happy boy who had a mother, and for two endless days I had been alone. Those days, and many that followed, come back to me now, but vaguely. I passed them mostly in a state of blank bewilderment, caused by the double sense of sameness and strangeness in everything around me. Then there were times when this gave way to a passionate anguish, which refused all attempts at comfort. In times even, but very, very seldom, when I almost forgot what had happened to me. Our one servant remained in the house with me, and a friend and neighbor of my mother's was constant in her endeavors to relieve my loneliness. But I was impatient of them, I fear, and chiefly anxious to be left alone to indulge my melancholy unchecked. I remember how, as autumn began and leaf after leaf fluttered down from the trees in our little garden, I watched them fall with a heavier heart, for my mother had known them, and now they, too, were deserting me. This morbid state of mind had lasted quite long enough when my uncle, who was my guardian, saw fit to put a summary end to it by sending me to school forthwith. 
he would have softened the change for me by taking me to his own home first but there was illness of some sort there and this was out of the question i was neither sorry nor glad when i heard of it for all places were the same to me just then only as the time drew near i began to regard the future with a growing dread the school was at some distance from london and my uncle took me down by rail but the only fact i remember connected with the journey is that there was a boy in the carriage with us who cracked walnuts all the way and i wondered if he was going to school too and concluded that he was not or he would hardly eat quite so many walnuts later we were passing through some wrought-iron gates and down an avenue of young chestnuts under a joyous canopy of scarlet amber and orange up to a fine old red brick house with a high-pitched brown roof and a cupola in which a big bell hung tinted a warm gold by the afternoon sun this was my school and it did not look so very terrible after all there was a big bow window by the pillared portico and glancing timidly in i saw a girl of about my own age sitting there absorbed in the book she was reading her long brown hair drooping over her cheek and the hand on which it rested she glanced up at the sound of the doorbell and i felt her eyes examining me seriously and critically and then i forgot everything but the fact that i was being introduced to my future schoolmaster the reverend basil daring this was less of an ordeal than i had expected he had a strong massively cut leonine face free and abundant white hair streaked with dark gray but there was a kind light in his eyes as i looked up at them and the firm mouth could smile i found pleasantly enough mrs daring seemed younger and though handsome had a certain stateliness and decision of manner which put me less at my ease and i was relieved to be told i might say good-bye to my uncle and wander about the grounds as i liked i was not surprised to pass through an empty schoolroom and to descend by some steep stairs to a deserted playground for we had been already told that the michaelmas holidays were not over and that the boys would not return for some days to come it gave me a kind of satisfaction to think of my resemblance just then to my favorite david copperfield but i was to have a far pleasanter companion than poor lugubrious flute-tootling mr mell for as i paced the damp paths paved with a mosaic of russet and yellow leaves i heard light footsteps behind me and turned to find myself face to face with the girl i had seen at the window she stood there breathless for an instant for she had hurried to overtake me and against a background of crimson creepers i saw the brilliant face with its soft but fearless brown eyes small straight nose spirited mouth and crisp wavy golden brown hair which i see now as distinctly while i write you're the new boy she said at length i've come out to make you feel more at home i suppose you don't feel quite at home just yet not quite thank you i said lifting my cap with ceremony for i had been taught to be particular about my manners i have never been to school before you see miss daring i think she was a little puzzled by so much politeness i know she said softly mother told me about it and i'm very sorry and i'm called marjorie generally shall you like school do you think i might said i if if it wasn't for the boys boys aren't bad she said ours are rather nice i think but perhaps you don't know many i know one i replied how old is he she wished to know not very old about three i think i said i had never wished till then that my only male acquaintance had been of less tender years but i felt now that he was rather small and saw that marjorie was of the same opinion why he's a baby she said i thought you meant a real boy and is that all the boys you know are you fond of games some games very said i what's your favorite game she demanded bezique i answered or draughts i mean outdoor games draughts are indoor games is indoor games i mean no are an indoor game and that doesn't sound grammar but haven't you ever played cricket not ever really i like it dreadfully myself 
only I'm not allowed to play with the boys, and I'm sure I can bat well enough for the second eleven. Cartwright said I could last term, and I can bowl roundhand, and it's all no use just because I was born a girl. Wouldn't you like a game at something? They haven't taken in the croquet hoops yet. Shall we play at that? But again I had to confess my ignorance of what was then a popular garden game. What do you generally do to amuse yourself, then? she inquired. I read, generally, or paint texts or outlines. Sometimes, I thought this accomplishment would surely appeal to her, sometimes I do wool work. I don't think I would tell the boys that, she advised rather gravely. She evidently considered me a very desperate case. It's such a pity you're not knowing any games. Suppose I taught you croquet now. It would be something to go on with, and you'll soon learn, if you pay attention, and do exactly what I tell you. I submitted myself meekly to her direction, and Marjorie enjoyed her office of instructress for a time, until my extreme slowness wore out her patience, and she began to make little outbursts of disgust, for which she invariably apologized. That's enough for today, she said at last. I'll take you again tomorrow. But you really must try and pick up games, Cameron, or you'll never be liked. Let me see. I wonder if there's time to teach you a little football. I think I could do that. Before she could make any further arrangements, the tea bell rang. But when I lay down that night in my strange cold bed, hemmed round by other beds, which were only less formidable than if they had been occupied, I felt less friendless than I might have done and dreamed all night that Marjorie was teaching me something I understood to be cricket, which, however, was more like a bloated kind of backgammon. The next day Marjorie was allowed to go out walking with me, and I came home feeling that I had known her for quite a long time, while her manner to me had acquired a tone even more protecting than before, and she began to betray an anxiety as to my school prospects which filled me with uneasiness. I am so afraid the boys won't like the way you talk, she said on one occasion. I used to be told I spoke very correctly, I said, verdantly enough. But not like boys talk. You see, Cameron, I ought to know, with such a lot of them about. I tell you what I could do, though. I could teach you most of their words. Only, I must run and ask Mother first, if I may. Teaching slang isn't the same as using it on my own account, is it? Marjorie darted off impulsively to ask leave, to return presently with a slow step and downcast face. I mayn't, she announced. Mother says certainly not, so there's an end of that. Still, I think myself it's a decided pity. And more than once that day she would observe, as if to herself, I do wish they had let you come to school in different collars. I knew that these remarks, and others of a similar tendency, were prompted by her interest in my welfare, and I admired her too heartily already to be offended by them. Still, I cannot say that they added to my peace of mind, and on the last evening of the holidays she said good night to me with some solemnity. Everything will be different after this, she said. I shan't be able to see nearly so much of you, because I'm not allowed to be much with the boys. But I shall be looking after you all the time, Cameron, and seeing how you get on. And, oh, I do hope you will try to be a popular kind of boy. I'm afraid I must own that this desire of Marjorie's was not realized. I do not know that I tried to be, and I certainly was not, a popular boy. The other boys, I now know, were by no means bad specimens of the English schoolboy, as will be evident when I state that, for a time, my deep mourning was held by them to give me a claim to their forbearance. But I had an unfortunate tendency to sudden floods of tears, apparently for no cause whatever, really from some secret spring of association, such as I remember was touched when I first found myself learning Latin from the same primer over which my mother and I had puzzled together. And these outbursts at first aroused my companion's contempt, and finally their open ridicule. I could not conceal my shrinking dislike to their society, which was not calculated to make them more favorably disposed toward me. While my tastes, my expressions, 
my ways of looking at things were all at total variance with their own standards the general disapproval might well have shown itself in a harsher manner than that of merely ignoring my existence and it says much for the tone of the school that it did not unfortunately i felt their indifference almost as keenly as i had dreaded their notice from my master i met with more favor for i had been thoroughly well grounded and found besides a temporary distraction in my school work but this was hardly likely to render me beloved by my fellows and so it came to pass that every day saw my isolation more complete something however made me anxious to hide this from marjorie's eyes and whenever she happened to be looking on at us in the school grounds or the playing fields i made dismal attempts to appear on terms of equality with the rest and would hang about a group with as much pretense of belonging to it as i thought prudent if she had had more opportunities of questioning me she would have found me out long before as it was the only occasion on which i was near her was at the weekly drawing lesson when although she drew less and talked more than the professor quite approved of she was obliged to restrict herself to a conversation which did not admit of confidences but this negative neutral tinted misery was not to last i was harmless enough but then to some natures nothing is so offensive as inoffensiveness my isolation was certain to raise me up an enemy in time and he came in the person of one clarence ormsby he was a sturdy good-looking fellow about two years older than myself good at games and though not brilliant in other respects rather idle than dull he was popular in the school and i believe his general disposition was by no means bad but there must have been some hidden flaw in his nature which might never have disclosed itself for any other but me for me he had displayed almost from the first one of those special antipathies that want but little excuse to ripen into hatred my personal appearance i had the misfortune to be a decidedly plain boy happened to be particularly displeasing to him and as he had an unsparing tongue he used it to cover me with ridicule until gradually finding that i did not retaliate he indulged in acts of petty oppression which though not strictly bullying were more harassing and humiliating i suspect now that if i had made ever so slight a stand at the outset i should have escaped further molestation but i was not pugnacious by nature and never made the experiment partly probably from a theory on which i had been reared that all violence was vulgar but chiefly from a tendency unnatural in one of my age and sex to find a sentimental satisfaction in a certain degree of unhappiness so that i can neither pity myself nor expect pity from others for woes which were so essentially my own creation though they resulted alas in misery that was not artificial it was inevitable that quick-sighted marjorie should discover the subjection into which i had fallen and her enlightenment was brought about in this manner ormsby and i were together alone shortly before morning school and he came toward me with an exercise of mine from which he had just been copying his own for we were in the same classes despite the difference in our ages and he was in the habit of profiting thus by my industry thanks cameron he said with a sweetness which i distrusted for he was not as a rule so lavish in his gratitude i've copied out that exercise of yours but it's written so beastly badly that you'd better do it again with which he deliberately tore the page he had been copying from to scraps which he threw in my face and strolled out and down to the playground i was preparing submissively to do the exercise over again as well as i could in the short time that was left when i was startled by a low cry of indignation and looking round saw marjorie standing in the doorway and knew by her face that she had seen all has ormsby done that to you before she inquired once or twice he has said i and you let him she cried oh cameron what can i do i said i know what i would do she replied i would slap his face or pinch him i wouldn't put up with it boys don't slap one another or pinch i said not displeased to find a weak place in her knowledge of us well they do something she said a real boy would 
but I don't think you are a real boy, Cameron. I'll show you what to do. Where's the exercise that that pig copied? Ah, oh, I see it. And now, look. Here she tore his page as he had torn mine. Now for an envelope. And from the doctor's own desk she took an envelope in which she placed the fragments and wrote on the outside in her round childish hand, with Marjorie's compliments for being a bully. He won't do that again, she said gleefully. He'll do worse, I said in dismay. I shall have to pay for it. Marjorie, why didn't you leave things alone? I didn't complain. You know I didn't. She turned upon me, as well she might, in supreme disdain. Oh, what a coward you are. I wouldn't believe all Cartwright told me about you when I asked, but I see it's all true. Why don't you stick up for yourself? I muttered something or other. But you ought to. You'll never get on unless, said Marjorie, very decidedly. Now, promise me you will next time. I sat there silent. I was disgusted with myself, and meanly angry with her for having rendered me so. Then listen, she said impressively. I promised I would look after you, and I did mean to, but it's no use if you won't help yourself. So, unless you say you won't go on being a coward any more, I shall have to leave you to go your own way, and not take the least interest in you ever again. Then you may, I said stolidly. I don't care. I wondered even while I spoke the words, what could be impelling me to treat spirited, warm-hearted Marjorie like that? And I hate myself still at the recollection. Goodbye, then, she said very quietly. I'm sorry, Cameron. And she went out without another word. When Armsby came in, I watched him apprehensively as he read the envelope upon his desk and saw its contents. He said nothing, however, though he shot a malignant glance in my direction. But the lesson was not lost upon him, for from that time he avoided all open ill-treatment of me, and even went so far as to assume a friendliness which might have reassured me had I not instinctively felt that it masked the old dislike. I was constantly the victim of mishaps in the shape of missing and defaced books, ink mysteriously spilled or strangely adulterated, and, though I could never trace them to any definite hand, they seemed too systematic to be quite accidental. Still, I made no sign, and hoped thus to disarm my persecutor, if persecutor there were. As for my companions, I knew that in no case would they take the trouble to interfere on my behalf. They had held aloof from the first, the general opinion, which I now perceive was not unjust, being that I deserved all I got. And my estrangement from Marjorie grew wider and wider, she never spoke to me now when we sat near one another at the drawing class. If she looked at me, it was by stealth, and with a glance that I thought sometimes was contemptuously pitiful, and sometimes half-fancied betrayed a willingness to return to the old comradeship. But I nursed my stupid, sullen pride, though my heart ached with it at times, for I had now come to love Marjorie devotedly, with a love that, though I was a boy and she was a child, was as genuine a passion as any I have felt since. The chance of seeing her now and then, of hearing her speak, though it was not to me, gave me the one interest in my life, which, but for her, I could not have borne. But this love of mine was a very far-off and disinterested worship, after all. I could not imagine myself ever speaking of it to her, or picture her as accepting it. Marjorie was too thoroughly a child to be vulgarized in that way, even in thought. The others were healthy, matter-of-fact youths to whom Marjorie was an ordinary girl, and who certainly did not indulge in any strained sentiment respecting her. It was left for me to idealize her. But of that, at least, I cannot feel ashamed, or believe that it did me anything but good. And the days went on, until it wanted but a fortnight to Christmas, and most of us were thinking of the coming holidays, and preparing with a not unpleasant excitement for the examinations, which were all that barred the way to them now. I was to spend my Christmas with my uncle and cousins, who would by that time be able to receive me, but I felt no very pleasurable anticipations, 
for my cousins were all boys and from boys i thought i knew what to expect one afternoon ormsby came to me with the request that i would execute a trifling commission for him in the adjoining village he himself he said was confined to bounds but he had a shilling he wanted to lay out at a small fancy shop we were allowed to patronize and he considered me the best person to be entrusted i was simply to spend the shilling on anything i thought best for he had entire confidence he gave me to understand in my taste and judgment i think i suspected a design of some sort but i did not dare to refuse and then his manner to some extent disarmed me i took the shilling therefore with which i bought some article i forget what and got back to the school at dusk the boys had all gone down to tea except ormsby who was waiting for me up in the empty schoolroom well he said and i displayed my purchase only to find that i had fallen into a trap when i think how easily i was the dupe of that not too subtle artifice which was only half malicious i could smile if i did not know how it ended how much was that he asked contemptuously two pence halfpenny well if you choose to give a shilling for it i'm not going to pay that's all so just give me back my shilling now as my weekly allowance consisted of three pence which was confiscated for some time in advance as i think he knew to provide fines for my mysteriously stained dictionaries this was out of the question as i represented then go back to the shop and change it said he i won't have that thing tell me what you would like instead and i will i stipulated not unreasonably he laughed his little scheme was working so admirably that's not the bargain he said you're bound to get me something i like i'm not obliged to tell you what it is but even i was driven to protest against such flagrant unfairness i didn't know you meant that i said or i'm sure i shouldn't have gone i want to oblige you ormsby no you didn't he said you went because i told you and you'll go again not unless you tell me what i'm to get i said i tell you what i believe he said you never spent the whole shilling at all on that you bought something for yourself with the rest you young swindler no wonder you won't go back to the shop this was of course a mere taunt flung out by his inventive fancy but as he persisted in it and threatened exposure and a variety of consequences i became alarmed for i had little doubt that innocent as i was i could be made very uncomfortable by accusations which would find willing hearers he stood there enjoying my perplexity and idly twisting a piece of string round and round his fingers at length he said well i don't want to be hard on you you may go and change this for me even now if you like i'll give you three minutes to think it over and you can come down into the playground when i sing out and tell me what you mean to do and you had better be sharp in coming too or it will be the worse for you he took his cap and presently i heard him going down the steps to the playground i would have given worlds to go and join the rest at tea but i did not dare and remained in the schoolroom which was dim just then for the gas was lowered and while i stood there by the fireplace trembling in the cold air which stole in through the door armsby had left open marjorie came in by the other one and was going straight to her father's desk when she saw me her first impulse seemed to be to take no notice but something in my face or attitude made her alter her mind and come straight to me holding out her hand cameron she said shall we be friends again yes marjorie i said i could not have said any more just then you look so miserable i couldn't bear it any longer she said so i had to make it up you know i was only pretending crossness cameron all the time because i really thought it was best but it doesn't seem to have done you much good i did promise to take care of you what is it ormsby again yes i said and told her the story of the commission oh you stupid boy she cried couldn't you see he only wanted to pick a quarrel and if you change it now he'll make you change it again and the next time and the next after that i know he will here ormsby's voice shouted from below now then you cameron time's up what is he doing down there asked marjorie 
and her indignation rose higher when she heard now cameron be brave go down and tell him once and for all he may just keep what he has and be thankful whatever it is it's good enough for him i'm sure but i still hung back it's no use marjorie he'll tell everyone i cheated him he says he will that he shall not she cried i won't have it i'll go myself and tell him what i think of him and make him stop treating you like this some faint glimmer of manliness made me ashamed to allow her thus to fight my battles no marjorie not you i said i will go i'll say what you want me to say but it was too late i saw her for just a second at the door my impetuous generous little marjorie as she flung back her pretty hair in a certain spirited way she had and nodded to me encouragingly and then i can hardly think of it calmly even now there came a sharp scream and the sound of a fall and after that silence sick with fear i rushed to the head of the steps and looked down into the brown gloom keep where you are for a minute i heard ormsby cry out it's all right she's not hurt now you can come down i was down in another instant at the foot of the stairs where in the patch of faint light that fell from the door above lay marjorie with ormsby bending over her insensible form she's dead i cried in my terror as i saw her white face i tell you she's all right said he impatiently there's nothing to make a fuss about she slipped coming down and cut her forehead that's all marjorie speak to me don't look like that tell me you're not hurt much i implored her but she only moaned a little and her eyes remained fast shut it's no use worrying her now you know said ormsby more gently just help me to get her round to the kitchen door and tell somebody we carried her there between us and amid a scene of terrible confusion and distress marjorie still insensible was carried into the library and a man sent off in hot haste for the surgeon a little later ormsby and i were sent for to the study where dr daring whose face was white and drawn as i had never seen it before questioned us closely as to our knowledge of the accident ormsby could only say that he was out in the playground when he saw somebody descending the steps and heard a fall after which he ran up and found marjorie i sent her into the schoolroom to bring my paper-knife said the doctor if i had but gone myself but why should she have gone outside on a frosty night like this oh dr daring i broke out i'm afraid i'm afraid she went out for me i saw ormsby's face as i spoke and there was a look upon it which made me pity him and you sent my poor child out on your errand cameron could you not have done it yourself i wish i had i exclaimed oh i wish i had i tried to stop her and then and then it was too late please tell me sir is she badly hurt how do i know he said harshly there i can't speak of this just yet go both of you there was little work done at evening preparation that night the whole school was buzzing with curiosity and speculation while we heard doors opening and shutting around and the wheels of the doctor's gig as it rolled up the chestnut avenue i sat with my hands shielding my eyes and ears engaged to all appearances with the books before me while my restless thoughts were employed in making earnest resolutions for the future at last i saw my cowardice in its true light and i felt impatient to tell marjorie that i did so to prove to her that i had really reformed but when would an opportunity come i might not see her again for days perhaps not at all till after the holidays but i would not let myself dwell upon such a contingency as that and to banish it try to picture what marjorie would say and how she would look when i was allowed to see her again after evening prayers read by one of the assistant masters for the doctor did not appear again we were enjoined to go up to our bedrooms with as little noise as possible and we had been in bed some time before sutcliffe the old butler came up as usual to put out the lights on this occasion he was assailed by a fire of eager whispers from every door sutcliffe hi old suddy how is she 
but he did not seem to hear until a cry louder than the rest brought him to our room for god's sake gentlemen don't he said in a hoarse whisper as he turned out the light they'll hear you downstairs but how is she do you know better ay he said she's better she'll be over her trouble soon will miss marjorie a low murmur of delight ran round the room which the butler tried to check in vain don't he said again wait wait till morning go to sleep quiet now and i'll come up first thing and tell you he had no sooner turned his back than the general relief broke out irrepressibly ormsby being especially demonstrative didn't i tell you fellows so he said triumphantly as if it were likely a plucky girl like marjorie would mind a little cut like that she'll be all right in the morning you'll see but this confidence jarred upon me who could not pretend to share it until i was unable to restrain the torturing anxiety i felt you're wrong all of you i cried i'm sure she's not better didn't you hear how sutcliffe said it she's worse she may even be dying i met with the usual treatment of a prophet of evil you young muff i was told on all sides who asked your opinion who are you to know better than anyone else ormsby attacked me hotly for trying to produce an alarm and i was recommended to hold my tongue and go to sleep i said no more but i could not sleep the others dropped off one by one ormsby being the last but i lay awake listening and thinking until the dread and suspense grew past bearing i must know the truth i would go down and find the doctor and beg him to tell me he might be angry and punish me but that would be nothing in comparison with the relief of knowing my fear was unfounded stealthily i slipped out of bed stole through the dim room to the door and down the old staircase which creaked under my bare feet the dog in the yard howled as i passed the big window through which the stars were sparkling frostily in the keen blue sky outside the room in which marjorie lay i listened but could hear nothing at least she was sleeping then and relieved already i went on down to the hall the big clock on a the table there was ticking solemnly like a slow footfall the lamp was alight so the doctor must still be up with a heart that beat loud i went to his study door and lifted my hand to knock when from within rose a sound at which the current of my blood stopped and ran backward the terrible heartbroken grief of a grown man boy as i was i felt that an agony like that was sacred besides i knew the worst then i dragged myself upstairs again cold to the bones with a brain that was frozen too my one desire was to reach my bed cover my face and let the tears flow though when i did regain it no tears and no thoughts came i lay there and shivered for some time with a stony stunned sensation and then i slept as if marjorie were well the next morning the bell under the cupola did not clang and sutcliffe came up with the direction that we were to go down very quietly and not to draw up the window blinds and then we all knew what had happened during the night there was a very genuine grief though none knew marjorie as i had known her the more emotional wept the older ones indulged in little semi-pious conventional comments oddly foreign to their usual tone all even the most thoughtless felt the same hush and awe overtake them i could not cry i felt nothing except a dull rage at my own insensibility marjorie was dead and i had no tears morning school was a mere pretense that day we dreaded for almost the first time to see the doctor's face but he did not show himself and the arrangements necessary for the breaking up of the school were made by the matron some including ormsby and myself could not be taken in for some days during which we had to remain at the school days of shadow and monotony with occasional ghastly outbreaks of the high spirits which nothing could repress even in that house of mourning the time passed at last until it was evening of the day on which marjorie had been left to her last sleep the poor father and mother had been unable to stay in the house now that it no longer covered even what had been their child 
and the only two besides the matron and the one or two servants who still remained there were ormsby and i who were both to leave on the following morning i would rather have been alone just then with any one but ormsby though he had never since that fateful night taken the slightest notice of me he looked worn and haggard to a degree that made me sure he must have cared more for marjorie than i could have imagined and yet he would break at times into a feverish gaiety which surprised and repelled me he was in one of those latter moods that evening as we sat as far apart as possible in the empty firelit schoolroom now cameron he said as he came up to me and struck me boisterously on the shoulder wake up man i've been in the blues long enough we can't go on moping always on the night before the holidays too do something to make yourself sociable talk can't you no i can't i said and breaking from him went to one of the windows and looked vacantly out into the blackness which reflected the long room with its dingy greenish maps and the desks and forms glistening in the fire beams the ice-bound state in which i had been so long was slowly passing away now that the scene by the little grave that raw cheerless morning had brought home remorselessly the truth that marjorie was indeed gone lost to me forever i could see now what she had been to me how she had made my great loneliness endurable how with her innocent fearless nature she had tried to rouse me from spiritless and unmanly dejection and i could never hope to please her now by proving that i had learned the lesson she had gone from me to some world infinitely removed in which i was forgotten and my pitiful trials and struggles could be nothing to her any more i was once more alone and this second bereavement revived in all its crushing desolation the first bitter loss which it so closely followed so as i stood there at the window my unnatural calm could hold no longer the long frozen tears thawed and i could weep for the first time since marjorie died but i was not allowed to sorrow undisturbed i felt a rough grasp on my arm as ormsby asked me angrily what was the matter now oh marjorie come to me i could only cry i can't bear it stop that do you hear he said savagely i won't have it who are you to cry about her when but for you he got no farther the bitter truth in such a taunt coming from him stung me to ungovernable rage i turned and struck him full in the mouth which i cut open with my clenched hand his eyes became all pupil you shall pay me for that he said through his teeth and forcing me against a desk he caught up a large t-square which lay near he was far the stronger and i felt myself powerless in his grasp passion and pain had made him beside himself for the moment and he did not know how formidable a weapon the heavily weighted ruler might become in his hand i shut my eyes i think i rather hoped he would kill me and then perhaps i might go where marjorie was i did not cry for help and it would have been useless if i had done so for the schoolroom was a long way from the kitchen and the office of that rambling old house but before the expected blow was dealt i felt his grasp relax and heard the ruler fall with a sudden clatter on the floor look he whispered in a voice i did not recognize look there and when i opened my eyes i saw marjorie standing between us she looked just as i had always seen her i think that even the afterlife could not make marjorie look purer more innocent and lovely than she was on earth my first feeling was a wild conviction that it had all been some strange mistake oh marjorie marjorie i cried in my joy is it really you you've come back after all and it is not true she looked at us both without speaking for a moment her dear brown eyes had lost their old childish sparkle and were calm and serious as if with a deeper knowledge ormsby had cowered back to the opposite wall covering his face go away he gasped cameron you ask her to go she liked you i never meant it tell her i never meant to do it i could not understand such terror at the sight of marjorie even if she had been what he thought her but there was a reason in his case you were going to hurt cameron said marjorie at length and her voice sounded sad and grave 
I don't care, Marjorie, I cried. Not now you are here. She motioned me back. You must not come nearer, she said. I cannot stay long, and I must speak to Ormsby. Ormsby, have you told anyone? No, he said, shaking all over. It could do no good. I thought I needn't. Tell him, said Marjorie. Must I? Oh, no, no, he groaned. Don't make me do that. You must, she answered, and he turned to me with a sullen fear. It was like this, he began. That night, when I was waiting for you down there, I had some string, and it struck me, all in a moment, that it would be fun to trip you up. I didn't mean to hurt you, only frighten you. I fastened the string across a little way from the bottom. And then, he had to moisten his lips here before he could go on. Then she came down, and I tried to catch her, and couldn't. No, I couldn't. Is that all? asked Marjorie as he stopped short. I cut the string and hid it before you came. Now you know, and you may tell if you like. Cameron, you will never tell, will you, as long as he lives, said Marjorie. You must promise. I was horrified what I had heard, but her eyes were upon me, and I promised. And you, Ormsby, promise me to be kinder to him after this. He could not speak, but he made a sign of assent. And now, said Marjorie, shake hands with him and forgive him, Cameron. But I revolted. No, Marjorie, I can't, not now, when I know this. Cameron, dear, she said, you won't let me go away sorry, will you? And I must go soon, for my sake, when I wish it so. I went to Ormsby and took his cold, passive hand. I do forgive him, Marjorie, I said. She smiled brightly at us both. And you won't forget, either of you, she said. And Greville, you will be brave and take your own part now. Goodbye. Goodbye. I tried to reach her. Don't leave me. Take me with you, Marjorie, dear. Dear Marjorie, don't go. But there was only firelit space where she had stood, though the sound of her pleading, pathetic voice was still in the air. Ormsby remained for a few minutes leaning against a desk with his face buried in his arms, and I heard him struggling with his sobs. At last he rose and left the room without a word. But I stayed there where I had last seen Marjorie till the fire died down, and the hour was late, for I was glad to be alone with the new and solemn joy that had come to me, for she had not forgotten me where she was. I had been allowed to see her once more, and it might even be that I should see her again. And I resolved then that when she came, she should find me more worthy of her. From that night my character seemed to enter upon a new phase, and when I returned to school, it was to begin my second term under better auspices. My cousins had welcomed me cordially among them, and as I mastered the lesson of give and take, of respecting oneself and respecting others, which I needed to learn, my early difficulties vanished with the weakness that had produced them. By Ormsby I was never again molested. In word and deed, he was true to the promise extracted from him during that strange scene. At first he avoided me as being too painfully connected with the past, but by degrees, as he recognized that his secret was safe in my keeping, we grew to understand one another better, although it would be too much to say that we ever became intimate. After he went to Sandhurst, I lost sight of him, and only a few months since the news of his death in the Sudan, where he fell gallantly, made me sorrowfully aware that we should never meet again. I had a lingering fancy that Marjorie might appear to me once more, but I have long since given up all hope of that in this life, and, for what may come after, I am content to wait. But the charge my child friend had undertaken was at an end on the night she was allowed to return to earth and determine the crisis of two lives. There is nothing now to call the bright and gracious little spirit back, for her influence will never leave me. No one seemed to know exactly what to say when the speaker's voice, which had been growing lower and lower, ceased altogether, and the pathetic story of Marjorie's love was at an end. 
it seemed to the listeners more like a personal confession than any of the preceding tales and therefore they felt that literary criticism would be out of place at length someone said it was difficult to recognize the voice i should be surprised to learn that that boy's life was not a noble and manly one and i dare say a very happy one too surely hardly any greater blessing can befall either man or woman than to have found and loved an ideal and then to have had it removed while still wholly noble and before any experience had come to prove it was but a poor actual after all and before any hateful discovery had marred the perfect sincerity of worship i do not know whether this sounds cruel but it seems true to me at least i cannot think of any worse fate than to have given one's self wholly in perfect faith to an ideal which one day had collapsed and stained everything else in life with the dust of its miserable fragments nobody ever knew who it was that spoke some thought it was beatrice others maintained it must have been the romancer the next day before they were fairly awake in the morning the passengers of the bavaria knew that they were running into a storm during the night the motion of the vessel had gradually increased and by the time it was daylight she was rolling heavily and the dark green water was above the portholes half the time below the timbers creaked and groaned things that were hung against the wall stood out straight with apparently ridiculous disregard of the law of gravitation the crockery rattled the steward stumbled heavily against the partitions as they made their way along the gangways the big portmanteaus chased the little ones all over the floor and every now and then a great echoing blow drowned every other sound as a mountain of water came thundering over the bows and went switching down along the deck over the heads of the scared passengers in their berths to get up was to face certain wretchedness and so everybody lay in bed with or without good cause until late in the morning the whole day was a miserable one but in one way or another it passed and the weather moderating a little at night the party who now sought each other out and clung together like magnetic particles were seated in a compact group in a corner of the companionway stairs one thing is quite certain beatrice was saying and that is we will not have another ghost story we have had three tales and three ghosts and another in such dreadful weather as this would be more than anybody could bear there is only one person remarked the tragedian whom I feel I can thoroughly depend upon to carry out your wishes. Come, he added, turning towards the editor. Give us a tale of love, or music. Or both, put in the romancer. And with the promptitude which distinguishes his craft, and the chivalry which is his personal characteristic, the editor did. End of section 4